Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's programme from Dufourstrasse, my guest today, Demita Pressel and Sarah Fatteroli are both here. Uh, Demita, you've done this before. Uh, Sarah's new to the uh, this, this scene, but uh, what's caught your eye? Uh, what have you seen in the headlines? So this week I've been thinking about um, what constitutes journalism a lot as a journalist, uh, watching a notorious uh, right-wing pundit interview a dictator on a murderous mission. Um, it's given me a lot of thought this week. Very good. We'll, of course, uh, unpack that. Many other things. We're also going to be heading to Istanbul for headlines from there. I'm Hannah Lucinda Smith in Istanbul, and I'll be talking about Turkey a year on from its devastating earthquakes, why Istanbul has become the world's most visited city and the first Turk to visit space. We'll also get the latest on the Finnish elections from our correspondent in Helsinki, Petri Burstov, and we'll be joined by Monocle's design editor in London, Nick Wanis. It's the 11th of February, 2024. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brule. And good morning from a, a rather heavy, uh, cloudy, uh, somewhat wintry, uh, could be springtime, uh, Zurich, uh, you're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Uh, some newish voices, uh, faces uh, and voices uh, around uh, the table uh, today. Uh, Demita Pressel uh, looking after a video uh, and all documentary uh, style output at the NZZ is here this morning. Good morning. Very nice to see you. Good morning. It's good to be back. Now, we're going to be talking a little bit uh, about that Tucker Carlson uh, interview uh, as well. And, and of course, uh, looking at a variety of stories, uh, both domestically and interna- internationally. You've also got a book uh, that you brought along. We won't dive into it yet, but just tease our listeners. Uh, what are we going to be talking about over there? Yeah, so I am currently reading The Showman by Simon Schuster, who has been the time correspondent um, for Russia and Ukraine for almost two decades. It's brilliantly written, and I love these t- kinds of works that they read like novels, but they deal with history. Um, it's it's brilliantly written. It's a It gives you a scene-by-scene account of the events leading up to the current war, um, but it starts much, much earlier. Um, the last the last book in that vein that I read was Bad Blood, um, detailing the events um, at Theranos. Um, and I, I just think it's it's a journalistic, this is the pinnacle of journalistic, um, this type of book is the pinnacle of journalistic work, and I really love love reading that type of book. That's also the rest of your Sunday afternoon uh, looked after as, uh, as well. Um, I'm also happy to say that we uh, we have a new voice uh, around uh, the table. Uh, Sarah Fatteroli is here down the street as well, I should say. NZZ is down the street. Uh, also, uh, Blick as well. Uh, and you're looking after, or at least deputy, uh, looking after economics uh, at, uh, at Blick as well. I am. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Not at all. Uh, tell me, uh, on the, the Blick front, and of course, our, our listeners around the world are pretty familiar now with, with the three uh, principal newspapers of record here in Zurich. Uh, what does your news day normally look like at, uh, at Blick uh, on the business and, and economy side? We're covering the housing market a lot lately, just because it's out of control, especially in Zurich, but in all of Switzerland. So that's been one of our biggest topics for the past couple of months. Good. Well, also, uh, it's, it sort of ties in a little bit uh, with our cities on the up issue, uh, which is our March issue of the magazine, which is going to be hitting newsstands uh, actually next week, uh, but uh, copies just arriving now. And it's a good cue to bring in our Nick Manis, uh, our design uh, editor in London. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Mr. Burley. How are you? I'm very well. Uh, thank you very much. Now, uh, you were, of course, just going into the news or out of the news. Uh, or no, it was going into the news, actually. Uh, you were, you were lo- sort of sounded like you were lobbying for, for a holiday. Uh, but as we established, as we established this week, there's, there's, so, there's so much to cover. I have to wait uh, till summer? 
Yeah, you might you might have to wait for summer. The Easter Bunny is coming, uh, Nick. Nick as well. This is good. just pa- paint the scene. Aside from schools being out uh, in uh, in London, uh, what else is happening your way? I mean, it it, it really the design uh, industry calendar really kind of kicks off very very quickly. So throughout January, I've, I've sort of been on the road. There's been uh, Paris. I've been, I've been in Milan for meetings. We've we've been in SIF for for or Copenhagen for SIF, uh, Stockholm Furniture Fair. It's really really sort of taking off. But all the momentum is building towards Salone del Mobile which is obviously the big fair in Milan. Um, so a lot of preparations actually starting right now. We're meeting a, a host of different designers to hear about their plans for the next year um, and obviously preparing for our Salone del Mobile newspaper as well. Nick, one of the topics that came up this week, we uh, just for our listeners, we do something in London called a Midori Mingler. So Midori House, uh, of course, our, our editorial hub. Uh, this is bringing together our colleagues from from both parts of the business. And we had uh, your colleague, uh, Natalie Tiarisi, our, our fashion editor, was talking a little bit, uh, well, not a little bit, it was actually at, at length, not just what's happened in, in the world of the fashion Industry, uh, but we, when we think about the business side of things, just how you know, just how really the, the the importance and the role that cities have played or don't play um, in this scene anymore is, is really significant. So we were talking a little bit about how London you know, used to be a city on the fashion calendar. You always spoke in terms of Milan, Paris, London, and what's emerged, uh, and and you're quite close to this also on the furniture side, is the rise of Copenhagen uh, and and how it's it's really become a situation. Certainly out of the last round of shows. Um, with with SIF, as you were saying, that we're now in a world of of Milan, Paris, and Copenhagen, and London not really having much of a, a voice anymore. Why is that? Absolutely, um, I think part of the shift is is Copenhagen really has positioned itself quite well to, I guess, take on uh, a lot of the, I guess, Scandinavian presentation and and. Uh, event side of things, particularly if we're, if we're talking furniture. So the major, major hub for, for years uh, or the major event, industry event for design for years in the Nordics, in Scandinavia, was Stockholm Furniture Fair. That's held uh, in the first week of February where it's, you know, minus uh, 5, 10 degrees Celsius in Stockholm. Uh, it, it's not really an appealing place to be. They, they sort of push you to their convention centre, which is on the, on the outskirts of, of, of the city. Uh, cut to Copenhagen, who I think... It was about eight or nine years ago launched three days of design, which is in June in beautiful. You know, you can go swim in the harbour and then go look at a, a display of furniture or meet some designers behind a, a new collection or, a, or, or developing a new material. If, if you're given the choice to, to go to one or the other, I think you're probably going to pick Copenhagen. And and I, that, that started to shift things on, on the design side. Um, I think on fashion, a lot of the discussions we had at at SIF were simply about the the uh, and SIF being the Copenhagen International uh, Fashion Fair, which uh, Monocle was was uh, hosting our pop up studio for Monocle Radio. A, a lot of the discussion I had with with buyers coming in, uh, you know, I, I talked to the team at Neiman Marcus, uh, a host of, of of even brands from London as well. Chatting with them, it was all about the quality of life in Copenhagen. Even though you know it was the the first or last week of January. Uh, People still could easily move around the city. It's, you know, got beautiful food, amazing light. Everyone talks about these cross-cultural collaborations. The number of times Noma was mentioned was phenomenal. Compare that to what Emma and and I are talking about in London right now, which is, despite it being school holidays, it's still unpleasant to move around. I think you're going to pick Copenhagen again. So there's a a host of different factors that have have come into that. and, And I think really it just keeps building momentum. 
I, I want to bring um, both uh, Sarah and, and, and Dimitri in on this topic as well. We seem to have this global race, uh, uh, you know, and we come, you know, we're a few weeks off off the back of uh, of the World Economic Forum, where cities and also regions. Uh, and we'll be talking a little bit later about about Samaritz and a big fashion show that happened there last week with Montclair, jockeying for for headlines. Um, and one of it is you could you could argue it's about filling beds and it's uh, it's it's propping up tourism. The other one is about bringing in new taxpayers uh, as well. In Switzerland, of course, we have this ongoing debate: how big do we want our cities to be? Uh, and and of course, that tension between well, you do need you know if you do need taxpayers as well if you're going to have Nick, as you're saying, if you're going to have an effective uh, infrastructure and you're going to have a city which which runs smoothly, uh, you also need people to be able to to pay for it. It's interesting in Zurich, we we've seen a call for. You know, listen. It's 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 a home of hedge funds. It's a home of all kinds of things. We've seen the Canton saying that maybe this should also be a place. I think it's in the NZZ this morning uh, that it sh- this should be the center for foundations. That if you want to set up a foundation, you should be coming to to Zurich uh, to do that. Do you feel there's a lot of like you know? Obviously, we know about the ongoing tension between you know, obviously Zurich and Basel, Sarah, Zurich versus Geneva, um, and and you know, maybe. Where is Switzerland internationally right now? Because we know there's been a bit of a few stumbles too. Um, we see the Basel Art Fair. Uh, we've, we've lost a watch show. Uh, Basel Art Fair is now uh, heading to Paris. I mean, it'll still be in Basel for now. Um, what's your take on that as a, from a business editor side? I mean, we've also seen Switzerland lose a big bank in the last 12 months. So I think that says it all. Um, we still see ourselves as one of the largest economies or one of the most important ones, even if we're small, but everyone's looking at us. Everyone's maybe jealous of us even. Um, And I think that has been changing and maybe we have not um, been aware of that fact. Yeah. I mean, I, this is obviously the other side that, you know, and I mean, you're, I mean, not a recent transplant, but uh, you've come from the other side of the border. You're from Austria. Uh, and, and of course, always, an in, uh, well, there's always an interesting tension, you know, as well between, you could say, you know, the principal German language cities uh, as well. Not so much a Vienna versus Zurich. I think some people would say that does Zurich really pay attention to, to Vienna because it's so far east? Uh, and, and likewise, uh, does Vienna pay much attention to Zurich either? But of course, there are many things in terms of, you know, housing international organizations, etc., where these cities do jockey for power. So picking up that point of, you know, Switzerland seeing themselves a certain way and the rest of the world seeing them a different way. I notice when I travel, um, you know, people, the first question people ask is, where are you from? And I'll say, I'm from Austria, but I live in Switzerland. And Switzerland tends to impress people a lot more than Austria. <laughs> and is that just because Austria is, 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 is misunderstood or people only understand it still from the sound of music or what is it? I think so. I, I think people just have this very strong association still with Switzerland as a place where a lot of things happen. The economy is very strong. People know Know that it's a rich country. I think there's a very strong association also with a certain level of quality. And this is a known fact, I think, in marketing, that if you put the Swiss flag on anything, people are just more likely to buy it, even if it's a pen or something like that, just because it stands so strongly for this tradition and quality. So I think from the perspective of at least the rest of Europe, when I travel, Switzerland is still very much when I say I moved to Switzerland, people still very much ask me, oh, how did you do that? Was it hard to get a job? Was it hard to find an apartment? I thought of doing that myself, so it's still very much an object of, or a country of, of a place of envy. I feel. Mm. Uh, Nick, you know where I'm going with this. Um, we have to bring up, of course, Australia's attempts at fashion weeks, all kinds of things, uh, and uh, it's interesting because you know you've talked about sort of that notion of quality of life. Australia does very, very well, but at a time when people have to be on one side more economical, not just with budgets, uh, but also thinking about climate issues as well, is it a big ask uh, to get people to schlep to the other side of the world? 
I, I think so. And I, th- I think as well in, in terms of uh, Australia's willingness to engage, I think it, it can sometimes prevent uh, present a barrier. I mean, you, you even see Australian contingents, it, it, for me, anecdotally and, and personally, uh, at these big events on the, uh, you know, for them on the other side of the world, in Milan, in Copenhagen, you, you seem to see very, very few. And the reason I feel like I notice it because anytime somebody hears me speaking and they're Australian as well, they instantly want to try and connect and try, I, try yeah, and talk I hope they're not asking where you're from. <laughs> no, absolutely. I hope they, I hope they figured it's, that out. It's, it's genuinely, it's almost always like, wow, you got out as well. That That's the sort of reaction to it. And I think the issue with that Australia has is it, it does tend to just be very, very insular and they you tend to see the same names over and over and over again, uh, essentially talking to each other in an echo chamber. Um, let's. Uh, we, we just referenced uh, a, a moment ago that uh, we would uh, maybe head up to the Alps. Uh, there's two stories. I mean, on, on one, once like we were saying at the start of the program, school holidays uh, start, you know, are, are underway here. Uh, France is going on holiday uh, next week. At least some parts of France already on holiday, and you have a lot of people who are heading to uh, to Green Mountains. And I think everyone felt very good because there was a lot of snow, at least in, in some parts of the Alps uh, around Christmas. It was amazing um, up in Saint Moritz. It was already a little bit green already by Christmas in, in Stad, for example. But they had snow. So we have the, you know, we have this ongoing story about what this is going to mean for the future of, of Alpine regions. Um, but Sarah, you, you maybe there's two we can sort of package it in on, on two sides. They want, we want to start with the climate side and what is being discussed. But it's of course it's an ongoing economic story. Is this still viable to send people up to mountains, send them up chairlifts, um, manufacture snow, etc.? And then of course what resorts uh, need to do to survive. So I think now we can actually see how it's changing. A friend of mine is a teacher and she just organized a skiing camp last week and they had to come home sooner because there was no snow left. So they couldn't take the kids skiing. So they just came home. Um, And I mean, Switzerland even made worldwide headlines a couple days ago when the New York Times wrote they took their horses to the Swiss Alps for snow polo. They got slush instead. So they're talking about St. Moritz and the big um, snow polo World Cup that was happening there um, and how it was just too warm and temperatures were going from below zero up to 12 plus degrees. So the organizers had a lot of trouble organizing that snow polo event that happens on a frozen lake. So as you can see, when the temperatures go from below 20 to plus 10, maybe that frozen lake's not going to be as frozen as you want it to be. Um, So I think this all just shows now that climate change is real and it's happening and now like the resorts they need to find a way out they need to diversify they need to find a way to get the tourists up there even when they can't go skiing we'll come back to of course uh, how you get the tourists and at least other other bodies up to the mountains in a moment but uh, Demita, when you look at uh, maybe the well not just the the media landscape uh, from german speaking europe but maybe even beyond if we were in the pages uh yes of, of some of the uh, the austrian dailies as well is it is it the same acute conversation what this means of course if you're St. Anton if you're Lech uh, if you're any number of other resorts as well and I'm wondering we're talking about how do you position yourself as a city is it time for maybe really an annual high alpine summit because this is something which of course is affecting uh, of course regions all over the world Sure, um, maybe. I'm sure resorts can can learn from each other there. But it's it's pretty much exactly what Sarah described. It's a conversation that we've been having in Austria for 15 years, and it's made headlines every single year. And just now, I feel like we're really seeing the actual impact where people are posting TikTok videos of themselves, you know, skiing on a on a very narrow. Um, 
path of that still has snow on it with with green grass next to it. So I feel like only now are people seeing the very real impact. And I feel like for the past decade, it's sort of been dismissed as this conversation that people got used to. It was in the headlines every year. Everyone sort of thought we're going to need to do something about this at some point, but I don't feel like any real solutions were ever developed. And now resorts are facing the reality that it's now very acute and and that it's now, you know, make or break moment. Absolutely. Um, and uh, Sarah, as you were saying a moment ago, so last week, uh, Montclair mounted really an extraordinary show, attracted tons of attention globally. Uh, Anne Hathaway, Kate Moss, uh, everyone uh, treks up to uh, 2,000 uh, meters above sea level plus. Uh, and, and you have this, you know, quite, quite remarkable show, which is, which is staged in the forest, on the slopes. Is that where things have to go now? This is, you know, Part of it, of course, is, is is part of the fashion cycle, and 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 everyone is not everyone, but let's say all of the major brands are doing these statement location shows uh, at the moment for sure. Uh, but of course, you have a an upmarket resort. Montclair has two stores in Samaritz. Uh, they also have to be part of maybe the conversation. But how do these resort towns reinvent themselves? I mean, I do understand that Montclair loves to host their show in St. Moritz because it's just the perfect backdrop for a marketing campaign. Um, I don't think this is necessarily the way we should take to give the resorts an alternative when the snow will not be coming any longer. There was a lot of criticism around this show because conservationists were saying that this should not be happening in the middle of the forest. To be fair, the organizers made a great job of actually protecting the woods. Um, They didn't leave any rubbish. They didn't cut any trees or anything. But still, um, I mean, I guess we need to be skeptical or critical when it comes to commercializing nature for brands like Montclair. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I guess at the start of it, though, it's interesting when you have chatter, though, there was also there were already stories before it happened that trees had been cut down, etc., that there was a correction around it. So what but what do you do? So what do you do for your next rodeo um, if you are these places? Now, maybe it's not just fashion shows, but, you know, is it I guess I guess certainly from an economic side. There's an issue also about this ongoing brain drain uh, as well, that keeping people up in, up in the valleys, keeping people, uh, not keeping them away from cities, but we've seen this draw also of talent. Um, and of course, there's various discussions about you know, trying to put think tanks in the mountains, et cetera. And I'm wondering, in your research, looking around, thinking about future documentaries, Demita, are, are there places that we can look to for benchmarks at the moment? Do you think that there are people that are, that are getting it right? So I'm not sure if you think that, yeah, do you look to Flims, Lox? Is, is there somewhere else that is actually leading the way in terms of what uh, Alpine World 3.0 might might look like? Demita? Um, I feel like it's the moment to correct you now. I don't actually do documentaries, um, just to set the record straight on that, because I don't want to, you know, um, step on my colleagues' toes here. Um, in Austria, like you said, we do have a lot of, there's a conference business, I feel like, um, mm. growing in the in those mountainous um, areas and regions, just because it's, it's nice to look at a pretty backdrop. And even if there's less snow, it still looks very nice. So that might be one way to go. Um, in Austria, I know that a lot of resorts um, focus more now on, uh, you know, hikes, winter hikes, um, activities where maybe you don't need quite as much snow. But maybe Sarah has a has a better answer to this because I don't I don't have a solution. (laughs) 
I mean, when you look at the tourism side of things, then definitely diversifying is the way to go. And we have a lot of resorts that do a great job, like Linzerheide, for instance, in Switzerland. They are now the top place for biking, mountain biking. And also like hiking that you mentioned. I remember when I was a kid, hiking was for old people. Hiking was boring. And now everyone goes hiking. 20-year-old hipster people from Zurich, they go hiking every single weekend up in the mountains. I mean, COVID changed a lot about this too. Um, so I think this is the way to go, summer tourism, to attract people to come to the mountains, not only when they can go skiing or snowboarding, but all year round. And then when it comes to the brain drain parts that you mentioned, this ties in with the housing market that we will be discussing later, because a lot of these places, they have the problem that people cannot find housing. Just because a lot of people buy holiday apartments up there, and then what's left for locals? Exactly. So this is a, yeah, a topic for that. I mean, I think, Nick, you know, going looking for your two-week holiday, of course, you'd be happy to, of course, uh, go and fill some space, wouldn't you? Oh, more, more than happy. I mean, what, Tyler, if you, if you look, if you need to give me an extra week, any additional time off, if this is part of some sort of research project we can work on together, I'd be yeah, more than happy to participate. Very good. Uh, time to head to, to uh, speak to our uh, correspondent uh, covering the Nordic world or the Baltic world for us. Uh, Petri Burstoff uh, is, is there for us. Uh, Petri, I, I, I hope you're back in Helsinki. Or are, you st- are, are, you, are you still on that island, uh, part of the, the Canaries archipelago? Oh, I wish. And by the way, Nick, you're welcome to join. No, no, I'm, I'm back in Helsinki. So instead of plus 25, I'm in minus 15 degrees. I just went to vote this morning and about a five minute walk from my uh, from my apartment. That was that was enough. Okay, so Patrick, just bring us up to speed. Of course, uh, we're in runoff period uh, with the presidential uh, elections uh, in Finland. Uh, where, where do things uh, stand? What are the polls saying? Um, and I'm not going to say you're a betting journalist, uh, but where do we end up? Right. Well, um, we have uh, the former prime minister and the conservative party candidate Alexander Stubb as a clear favorite uh, by by the bookers and and by most political analysts. He has enjoyed a lead in the polls all throughout the election. He, in the latest um, uh, polls released just a few days ago, he had a eight percentage point lead over the challenger uh, Becca Harvest, the Green Party candidate. Um, you know, Harvisto has been playing catch up. He has actually caught up. The the lead was uh, bigger uh, in in the previous weeks, but he's he has a lot of uh, catching catching up to do. Especially because it's you know um, as as often tends to happen in Finnish elections, it's come down to this left and right uh, divide. Uh, Harvisto, the Green Party candidate, seen as a as a more leftist candidate, and Stubb as a um, Sort of more right-wing candidates, and most Finns vote conservative. So, so you know, Harvisto has to turn a lot of uh, people's heads around uh, before, before, if he is to win, win it tonight. Um, just uh, let, let's, if we're looking at a world of Mr. Stubb, um, certainly uh, at uh, at the helm, and, and we should also remind people that that when we talk about uh, the president of Finland, uh, this is not just a ceremonial role uh, as well. Uh, of course, uh, there there is uh, certainly a component to play within uh, within international affairs, uh, also on on the the defense and security side um, as well. Um, the, the, the reception and, and what type of president uh, will he be? And of course, he's not new to, uh, to the political scene by, by any stretch. And you can say not just uh, when we talk about, about Finland, but also on the international stage. 
No, not, not at all, not at all. He served as the prime minister, as the foreign minister, as a member of the European Parliament, and I think he was a finance minister there at some point as well. Plus, you know, he's probably out of all the politicians that Finland has had in the past couple of decades, the most internationally minded and one with most international exposure. He's usually the one that the likes of uh, CNN call up if they want to talk about Finland. He, I think he's on Amanpour almost every week, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, he's very, very internationally minded. He's lived most of his adult life ab abroad um, the past couple of years in Florence as a professor. Uh, very pro-NATO. Uh, He's been a, a lifelong NATO uh, supporter, which is a risky political move in Finland, has been up until the war in Ukraine. Um, very staunch uh, liberal um, as well. I mean, I said he is from the conservative party, but he is definitely from the liberal uh, wing of 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 that um, party and uh, pro U.S. as well. He has lived in the U.S. Uh, before, and he wants Finland to have very close relations with the U.S. and also a high standing in in international uh, affairs. So uh, Finland with Stub, Finland would get, um, I would say, an extremely sort of internationally minded president and also um, someone who is. Uh, youthful um, and, um, you know, speaks, I think, six or seven languages fluently. So very good for brand Finland in, in that sense as, as well. Married to uh, Suzanne Ines Stubb, uh, uh, originally from the UK. Um, so this would be the first time that Finland gets a president whose partner is, is, um, is not from Finland. And that would be interesting, interesting as well. Uh, interesting um, and, and exciting or just interesting? Both, I would say both. I would say, I mean, I, it's, it's been quite funny watching the election debates because they've interviewed uh, the partners as well. And uh, she's given um, interviews in Finnish and Swedish. Of course, Stubb is bilingual. They speak Swedish at home. Um, um, so uh, it, it's it's quite interesting because, you, you know, usually you see you see the president's uh, second second halves, of course, uh, speaking fluent Finnish. And now you have somebody who is uh, just learning, learning the language. But then, you know, beyond that, because the partners on the the travels, their job is to promote Finland and, and, and so on, you know, so for somebody who's, who's not originally from here, that must be an, an interesting, interesting job. But um, yeah, interesting, exciting, I would say. Very good. Um, could you stick around for a, a moment, uh, Petri, because I think Emma Nelson is back in London with the news and also, of course, uh, that story from Finnair. Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. As uh, we've just been hearing, voters in Finland are choosing between two experienced politicians to be their next president today. Former Prime Minister Alexander Stubb on the centre-right and former Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto from the Green Left largely agree on Finland's foreign policy and security priorities. The President of Hungary, Katalin Novak, has resigned after it emerged she pardoned a man convicted of helping to cover up sexual abuse in a children's home. A record 195 million passenger trips were made in China on Friday, a rise of 27% from last year. The Chinese Lunar New Year or Spring Festival fell on February the 10th this year. Finland's flagship airline has announced it is now going to weigh passengers, not just their luggage. Finnair says the weigh-ins are voluntary and anonymous. And staying with aviation, a British Airways flight between Milan to London Heathrow was delayed after a surprise inspection by Italian aviation officials revealed the aircraft had the wrong type of seat cushions. Some of the cushions at the overwing exits were too thick and wide and needed to be replaced with smaller cushions before the plane could take off. Luckily, the seat cushions have serial numbers 
numbers printed on the bottom. So all the passengers had to do was stand up, lift up their seat cushions to see if they were in possession of an emergency exit cushion. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Emma, now uh, let's go back to the t- to, to the topic of what did you say um, that they were they were what wa- thick and wide. Yeah. So this sort of so this brings us into of course the the, the Finnair the Finnair story as well. Um, Petri, how if if I was looking at Ulle, uh, if I was looking at the Helsingin Sonomat, uh, how, how is this story uh, playing out uh, in 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 Finland? And of course, we've been hearing about this you know, story for a long time. I think in, in certainly in a world of uh, all types of, of various ways of, of probably measuring people body mass without them even knowing maybe it's been happening uh, all, already but what type of attention is this getting in Finland it's it's gotten a lot of attention I have to say Tyler it was uh, one of the top news uh, this this past week when it was announced and I have to say not great for for Finnair and for its for its brand because I I think I mean I, I mean hats off to them for actually uh, coming um, out with this news you know they 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 released a, a um, press release uh, you know detailing this information but the general sense i mean looking i'm just looking at the Ule story now and I remember reading the uh Sanomat story as well was that finnair starts to weigh, weigh the passengers and the you know as soon as you read the headlines the sense you get is that okay well you know what if i'm fat <laughs> will i not be allowed to board the plane but of course that's not what it's all about at all it's it's basically just for their internal research and and the passengers won't even see they see the information so 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 i, I think it was the um, Kind of a comms fader, to be to be honest with with you, because um, you know now it just looks like they're nasty and they they want to weight shame you. <laughs> okay, so so listen, uh, Emma, but dude, is there any any indication of how this is happening? Is it like being sort of a truck on a highway and you have to go sort of pull off to the side and and there's a sort of a way station uh, when I get to Vanta Airport? <laughs> I think it's a little more discreet than that, and and oh, that's I mean, a shame. I, isn't that a shame? <laughs> and also, there's that lovely inscrutability that, that that the Finnish face often possesses as well. So what happens is that you you do it at the gate basically and um only the person at the gate knows how big or small you are and and i don't think they say anything out loud but i would just want i would just love to sort of like read the faces of those sort of doing the check-ins and what have you aren't petri am i right in thinking that the finns are particularly a sort of like quite a quite a large tall nation so you know you're you're already you know from this small brit's perspective i, I i'm feeling sort of quite quite sprightly in, in comparison yeah, I I would agree with you. I remember I had uh, lunch in London with uh, Andrew Tuck and then uh, Marcus Hippie, a former longtime monocle voice, and uh, Andrew just said that he f- he felt a little bit uh, um, small with um, Marcus and me being being there. And I think both Marcus and I are kind of average height in Finland. We're like uh, 182 something centimeters. So yeah, maybe maybe we are taller than average. Larger, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm just, I'm just sort of, I'm keen to see how the story plays out in the new world as well. Nick, um, you know, and I, I was looking at this to see if it was also in the Wall Street Journal, uh, has not been picked up uh, yet, and, and I, I think we've, we've all spent time in, in U.S. airports. I don't think we're saying anything, hmm. um, maybe out of, out of turn here as well. But what that would also mean for for U.S. carriers, and, and potentially ones in Australia as well. Well, I mean, so there's two things going on here. If this was rolled out in the states, you can almost bet that there would be you know, an additional fee that you can pay to get around this. That's one thing I love about US airports is if you want to avoid something, whether you want some sort of pre-TSA, uh, pre-TSA check or similar, some sort of fast track line, 
100% you can pay for it. So I, I, I can't see this being a problem in the United States where, you know, just throw a little bit of uh, money at it or, or, you know, add some sort of app and you'll, you'll get around it. Where in, in Australia, they love, love, love to weigh things. Like, they, I don't know what it is. Um, you, you, a Qantas flight, you know, our, our flagship carrier will still, uh, at the moment, they weight shame you with luggage. But if you've got a couple of books in your carry-on, good luck, mate, getting on that plane because they're going to make you check that bag. They are, they are, they, so this is, I feel like, right up their alley. I feel like I've been doing a lot of Australia bashing this morning. I really hope uh, that, that, <laughs> that uh, most of them have gone to bed in Sydney. But I, 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 I think it's like that, that kind of funny thing where, for whatever reason... Uh, uh, sometimes we love being a, a little bit of a nanny state, and this is just an opportunity to flex that muscle. Yeah, I- indeed. Uh, Patrick, we're going to pro- let, you, let you go because we're going to head to Istanbul um, in, in a moment. Uh, I want to just uh, maybe bring up another story, and uh, Emma, just maybe stick around for this as well. So on Thursday evening uh, here in Switzerland, there was a an attack uh, in a train in Canton Vaux, not far from yverdon le bain So this was... Um, an evening, uh, an evening commuter tr- commuter train service, uh, and a gentleman with a knife and an axe uh, held a series of uh, train passengers hostage. Uh, the, uh, the the train operator was also pulled out of the cab, etc. Anyway, train comes to a halt, uh, and of course is surrounded by police. Of course, they're they're aware that this is happening. People are able to call the police. Um, I want to discuss this because it just struck me as a curious story, because it it sort of disappeared from the news. Um, if this was a story, and you know, we're just going back to talking about Australia, Nick, uh, Emma, you know, just referencing the US and the UK, what was amazing 12 hours after the story happened, and, and I, I landed back in Zurich, is that there was no ticker, um, there was no feelings journalism after it. Uh, and that was, you know, it was from Blick, it was from NZZ, if I looked at Le Temps from, uh, from French-speaking Switzerland, you know, there was, there was really, there was nothing there. And um, I thought this is a good moment uh, on a program where we like to sort of look at the media. Was you know, are there a certain set of conditions? Um, and maybe Emma, you can sort of reflect how that same type of story. And I think we know how that same type of story would play um, in the English language media, Nick, as well. But um, to to Sarah uh, and um, and to Demita, Sarah, I'll start with you. Um, a peculiar, or or maybe just the way things are done in a Swiss, or or maybe German-speaking newsroom, but I don't know, maybe not German-speaking, because I, I think I think that Bill Zeitung would have handled it very differently than how Blick might have handled it. I think this goes to show the divide between the German and the French-speaking part of Switzerland, because this happened in the French-speaking part, which is quite far away. I mean, it's not far away f- from international perspective, but. From a Swiss perspective, this is like the other side of the country. And then this just logistically speaking makes it harder to cover. So um, speaking for Blick, we had three reporters down there. Um, this all started, like you said, on Thursday evening, night. So they were working through the night. And then at one point on Friday, they had to go home and sleep. And we just didn't have the manpower to cover it any further. And then, I mean, you start trying to find ways to cover it still but just logistically speaking it was tough for us because it was farther away than what we usually cover inside Switzerland. But what's, what's interesting to me is, is also there was none of that soul searching that we tend to get in Western media which I said comes back to the feelings journalism. Let's have you know an endless discussion with all of the people who are on board. Let's talk about the, the failings or the successes and we should say that the perpetrator uh, they let off a flash grenade and and he was shot and, and killed. He's an asylum seeker from, from Iran. Um, so Again, you know, from your Austrian background, you're, you're just your, your role in a, in a newsroom here in Zurich. What, what's different? I think the Swiss have less of a knack for sensationalizing things than certainly 
I observed in the Austrian media. And I think that speaks for them. I, I really enjoy this way of doing journalism. It was reported, but I didn't feel like you said, like there was a whole, you know, there were no news tickers. There were no, there was no feelings journalism. And especially what there wasn't, which is a strong tendency in Austria, is the tendency to take one horrible incident and then, you know, start following it up with a bunch of demands and a bunch of supposed failings by this or that agency, which aren't always the case, right? I mean, no matter how well administered a state is and no matter how well law enforcement works in a state, there's always going to be horrible things happening. Now, if those horrible things start happening um, statistically a lot or or if they somehow start happening in a, in a manner that, you know, clusters or there's some sort of one failing that always seems to repeat itself, then of course it's important to look at that and say, what are we maybe doing wrong here? But to not make one horrible thing bigger than it actually is and to not then start questioning your entire system, I think that speaks for Swiss journalism. Emma, listening to this, you can imagine if there's a train in the southeast uh, yeah, on, d- during rush hour uh, and you have a hostage situation uh, and, and, of course, uh, Yes, uh, a, a perpetrator with you know many things you know stacked against them, right or wrong, uh, and and uh, and then of course uh, and then they're also killed uh, as well when it seemed it was a rather effective operation. But none of this is is really being discussed, analyzed. There's there's nothing in the Sunday papers which sort of really unpacks this in in a big way in the way that we would see it in the UK. Absolutely, I agree. Um, we had a an almost parallel story happen here in the United Kingdom last week when there was a man called uh, Abdul Azidi. Um, who is believed to have carried out a horrible, corrosive uh, attack on a woman and her children in Clapham in South London. An enormous manhunt ensued where he was followed on CCTV and every hour, every minute, we were getting an update about where this man was. And he was an asylum seeker. It opened up a huge narrative about the fact, how was he granted asylum? How was he allowed to do this? The right-wing media went bananas. There was lots of dog whistle, you know, um, messages going out. And then it emerged at the end of the week that he probably met a really tragic end by throwing himself into the Thames. At that point, you start to, you editorially decide, do you want to draw a line under this and say, this is just a really, really sad story about one person who was desperately unhappy, did something desperately awful to something else and then took his own life. But the British media were down by the Thames all day yesterday and probably are there this morning as they're trying to find this man's body, which may not be discovered for a month. The, the issue is bringing up things like logistics. It is easier for a newsroom to set, based in London to send a reporter to go and stand by the Thames than it is to get them to do something else in the country. So you have the practicalities of that. You have the news diary. It was, by all accounts, quite a quiet news day yesterday here in the UK. And you also have that idea of laziness. Do you think it is easy to, to, to pull on people's emotions rather than just saying, actually, let's take a cool head here. This is an individual who did something awful. Let us let them be. And just listening to the to the way that the Swiss approached the, the train hostage situation, which involved potentially far more people, you just sort of crave cool heads here. 
Mm. And I mean, there is also part of it as well, not, not that and we have had also st- a few stories, um, of, of course, of, of collusion or a possible collusion between um, certainly Swiss media agencies uh, and uh, and the government uh, in, in at both the federal level and elsewhere um, over the over the past few years uh, as well. That is there some secret handshake? Is there a red phone um, to maybe also sit on stories? Uh, and, and this is you know, in, in a way you could almost think that there is a component, but I'm not talking about co- collusion here that yeah let's also not bring this to the fore we don't want to over amplify this because actually this story could be missed we always talk in terms of copycats um that this actually could be could be missed by most many people as well by the time it happened it was it was sort of gone nick uh, your take on that i think we know that the australian media would be very very similar in that sense but i guess lesson to be learned uh, in this type of uh, editorial approach i think i think for me i mean i i, re- I really i wouldn't say enjoy because obviously it's a terrible story but i i really like the uh, swiss coverage of, of this train story, partly because it, it felt like it reached a, you know, it reached a conclusion. What, what information do you need from the from the media? What additional opinion or analysis do you need? Or is it really, here are the facts, this is what happened. Uh, maybe a, a little bit of, maybe the tiniest bit of, uh, I guess, feelings journalism, and then sort of move on. The fact that, you know, there are journalists down on the Thames right now continuing this story when it's already come to an end. I mean, what, what more do you need to learn about this story. But I understand covering the manhunt, that's perhaps relevant. This man was dangerous. But once once they... Because the other thing was he had life-threatening injuries himself and obviously with the CCTV, they worked out it was by the Thames. End of of story there. For me, that's, I think, where we need to draw the line. And Emma's going to jump in here too. When you learn journalism... They, they ask you to um, make a judgment on whether you want to st- cover a story. And it's that balance between is it in the public interest or is it just simply interesting to the public? And um, I wonder sometimes whether that slightly gets a bit blurred nowadays. Mm. Uh, just and maybe for, for everyone uh, here, but, but certainly the, uh, my uh, certainly my, my colleague standing uh, across from me here in Zurich. Is there... Sarah, is there a discussion, uh, because I think we, we have one as an English language news organization, but of course, wanting to be international, not just wanting to come from London or Washington or Los Angeles. Uh, do you feel there's a, that there's a dialogue you know, at, at Ringier, the parent company of your organization? You, have, you run a journalism school um, as well. You know, what is the, the Swiss? What is the European way of doing things? Knowing that, of course, we have this, of course, onslaught from the English language world as well, the pressure and and the way that that narratives develop in newsrooms there, the potentially successful business models of how uh, U.S. uh, media organizations run themselves, of course, massive question mark uh, as to to whether that's effective. Um, Is there a bit of soul searching going on as to what is the the European or maybe the Swiss way of doing news versus, oh, they do it that way at the New York Times. Let's just cut and paste. Definitely. This discussion is ongoing. And I would definitely say we're soul searching for a Swiss way to do it, not a European one. Just because being Swiss, it's just different. The market is different here. We're such a small country and then only a part of that country is German speaking. So that's our market. And it's just so much smaller than all the other markets we see internationally. So yes, definitely. We have to find our own way. We cannot just copy what the US media do or even what the German media do. Mm, um, and and you, your side as well, because you look at the NZZ, they do you know many things in a very interesting way. Uh, of course, yeah, in, independent uh, player, uh, of course, with a very interesting business model uh, as well. How much is there a sense of being yeah, quite satisfied with how things are going as much as yeah, we don't want uh, this from London or we don't really want to import this from, from Washington. So I think soul-searching discussions are very important and principle discussions are very important. But at the end of the day, every 
newspaper or every media outlet has a bottom line. And I think as sad as it is in a lot of those cases, what it comes down to is are people going to click? Are people going to watch? And I think the only way that a, a media outlet can take itself out of that race is if it's lucky enough, like Monocle or like the NZZ, to have a fairly highly educated, but also financially, you know, um, an audience that's willing to pay a little bit more and that's also interested in more of a broader focus and an international outlook. But if you're privately, if you're a media outlet that's financing itself privately with no state backing, it's always going to come down a little bit to what will people click and what will people watch. And unfortunately, it then becomes all too easy to play into people's worst instincts. Mm. Um, and to the uh, to the to the people in the bleachers in London, do you buy that, Nick, Emma? Yes, actually, I I, I do. It's um, but. but- when you, but one of the most important things, and you'll know this better than anybody, Tyler, is that you play to your audience because you don't have an audience. No one will buy or listen, buy your paper or your magazine or listen. Um, you also here have um, enormous issues when it comes to uh, the impartiality of the print media, at least broadcast is strictly re- regulated. But when you have papers which decide to play either left wing, right wing, whatever, incredibly openly, um, in order to sort of whatever you know f- further their further their own nests. It, the, the sort of like the, the common sense element can often fall by the wayside. I think I think as well, it, it's like I do feel incredibly privileged in terms of who we speak to as our, our media organisation. Uh, you know, compare this, I walked past a newsstand that had the uh, the Sun, uh, you know, tabloid on, on display this morning. And, it, you know, the things they're covering is Billy Piper splitting from a rocker boyfriend. There was news of a football player having a threesome. And you've got to really come back to, uh, you know, is this in the public? interest or is this just interesting to the public it's all go in england that's all we can it, say it, it is again listen uh domina's gonna have a busy afternoon uh, with uh, with her book also I'm, I'm sure that copy of the sun um nick is going to keep you very busy uh, as well Alyssa, it's just gone 10 48 here in zurich 12 48 uh, in this almost 12 49 uh where we're heading now to speak to our correspondent there um hannah lucinda smith uh, good uh, good afternoon good afternoon uh, maybe uh, just uh, w- there's uh, in the interest of time uh, and uh, and also editorial process, I will let you start. Uh, what, uh, what what's principle that we need to know uh, from uh, your side of the Bosporus today? Sure. Well, I mean, it's hard to believe, but this week it was the first anniversary of the huge earthquakes which devastated uh, ten regions of Turkey last year, and much of the focus has been on how quickly the reconstruction uh, is happening. And, and the simple answer to that is not as quickly as President Erdogan had promised right at the start. There are around 300,000 buildings uh, in total that were either destroyed during the earthquake or that that had to be demolished afterwards because they were so badly damaged. Um, About two and a half uh, million people displaced. Um, And we are still a year on in a situation where almost a million people are living in temporary accommodation. So that is either tents or container homes. And then on top of that, more people uh, renting homes in other areas. Just the amount of devastation and really the lack of progress is is quite startling. Um, now, it's not just in those areas. I have to say last week, by chance, I was down in another city called Elazi, which suffered an earthquake back in 2020, four years ago. And the shocking thing was that there are still spaces in that city, not a few, a lot, where buildings have come down 
and nothing has yet happened uh, to replace them. So it's not just in this huge area. It, it's in places all over Turkey. Now, there are reasons for this. The reason, of course, why President Erdogan promised that so many homes, everyone will be rehomed within a year, uh, that was because there was an election coming up in May last year. Um, what we saw was that the, the pace of rebuilding really slowed after that election, which, of course, President Erdogan won. That's partly because it's become very, very hard to persuade contractors to take on these projects simply because Turkey's economic situation is so bad. The price of uh, imported materials has shot up. The price of everything has shot up, frankly. Um, And that's one of the reasons why rebuilding is taking so long. But we've now got local elections coming up uh, at the end of March. And so once again, we're hearing the same kind of rhetoric, the same kind of promises to rebuild houses but i have to say you know for the people who uh you know, lost their homes in that earthquake the situation is still really bleak hey, hannah it's interesting when you talk about uh, just the resources issue just that construction is not moving at pace because the flip side you would say if you look at uh, of course uh, erdogan and of course the turkish foreign ministry you, you, you pop up in countries all over the world and you see that uh, of course well whether it's you know it's turkey incorporated government and also the private sector are very busy building things all over or elsewhere in the world uh, is this is this a discussion maybe uh, that there should be a bit more of a focus on with all of these massive engineering companies to sort things out in your own backyard yeah i mean that that has not going to notice let's say um yeah as you say the turkish economy at home has put a huge amount of uh, emphasis on construction particularly over the past 10 years, and particularly when it comes to these kind of huge mega projects, things like new airports, new roads, new bridges. Um, the state's borrowed a huge amount of money to, to kind of pump up all these kind of things. So people are asking, you know, why is it taking so long? Now, I think, you know, to be fair to Turkey, to the Turkish government, you know, there was a huge amount of destruction in this earthquake. It's really kind of difficult to describe just the level of it. There are cities that need to be reconstructed entirely but i think there is also a sense of you know this isn't really being properly planned out that everything is kind of politicized that promises are made um that somehow there is the money for other things you know there is construction as you say going on even in other countries Turkey is very involved in for example building mosques in other muslim countries and i think people are starting to wonder you know why it is taking so long here um, just uh, very quickly, um, two other stories. Um, well, one aviation-related, certainly people flying into Istanbul. Uh, the other one also Turks going, uh, Turk going out into space as 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 well. Uh, what's a bigger story? Just the the sheer amount of uh, tourists. I mean, Istanbul becoming the world's most visited city. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we have to sort of be very careful about the statistics here. It comes from Euromonitor. What they're saying is that. Turkey has become the most visited city when you look at arrival numbers. Now, I think clearly Istanbul has become very popular. I see that living here just by how crowded places are, not just the tourist attractions, but just even on the streets. And that's partly because Istanbul does have this huge new airport, which Turkish Airlines is really trying to push as a kind of layover destination. Uh, They're trying to turn Istanbul into a transit destination and encouraging people to spend a few days in the city while they're flying on somewhere else. Also, the weak lira, you know, it's made prices relatively very cheap here, um, although inflation is doing something to sort of rein that back. Um, but, uh, you know, after a really difficult few years, you know, security problems, coup here in Turkey, then the pandemic, I think you know, we're really seeing a comeback here in Istanbul of tourism. And uh, and just finally, uh, where is, uh, just tell us about uh, the, the, the Turk uh, that has uh, been uh, sent out, not quite to deep space, but outer space nevertheless. Yeah, sure. So this is Alper Gezerad Avji. He's Turkey's first astronaut, and he joined uh, the SpaceX mission on Falcon 9 capsule going to the International Space Station earlier this month. He just touched back down 
uh, last night. The return was delayed, I think, three times because of bad weather, but they did touch down yesterday. He's spoken with President Erdogan. Now, this is obviously, you know, not a Turkish national mission, but it is a matter of Turkish pride. President Erdogan has talked repeatedly about turning Turkey into a country that, that does space exploration, that launches satellites. It's taken some steps uh, towards that in recent years. It launched its own satellite, I think, last year for the first time. Um, and obviously, this is a big step. You know, the Alper Gezeravci came back and he said, you know, I've finally put a Turkish signature in the International Space Station. So I think it's a matter of huge, uh, huge national pride here in Turkey. Hi, Lucinda Smith, our correspondent, Istanbul. Thank you very much for that. Uh, just coming up to 10.55 uh, here in Zurich, because we've got uh, four minutes to cover two stories that we flagged at the top of the show. Sarah, it was just interesting, of course, listening to housing, uh, well, the lack of housing reconstruction happening off the back of a, an earthquake a year ago uh, in, in Turkey. Housing crisis everywhere. Uh, we have sort of this boom in Zurich, uh, and uh, and at the same time, uh, also, uh, yes, just this ongoing discussion in many, many cities like elsewhere, just a a lack of housing. Yeah, so I'm, I myself, I have been looking for a new flat in Zurich for more than a year. I've been lucky enough to find one now, but this took me a long time and I'm not the only one. So um, we see people queuing up for hours just to get a chance to take a look at an apartment, which is not like the best apartment ever. It's also not the cheapest one. It's just any apartment, basically. So people are desperate to find places. And this week, an interesting study came out that showed how older people, so 65 years plus, are using up way too much space because usually they stay in their houses or apartments even after their children move out. But then they just can't find a cheaper place. Any new place, even if it's smaller, will be more expensive. So they stay in those big houses or big flats. And then younger people, they have way less space to live on. So if we were able to somehow move these people around, we would be able to make up more space for more people to live. Yes, a lot of a discussion about compaction uh, and, and and sort of a reassignment of, of walls and, and all of those things. Um, Demita, I'm not sure if you've also been uh, on the, the hunt for a property as well. Maybe some of our listeners can help you find it if you don't have one right now. I got incredibly lucky in Zurich. I, um, I moved into the second apartment I ever visited, but I've also heard the horror stories that everyone's um, telling about about this um, hunt for apartments. I know that Zurich's been building more in the past few years, but then there's also been criticism saying that the the building that's happening is mostly high end, very expensive apartments that don't really help the average resident in Zurich. Um, just in about one minute or less, just tell us, uh, we talked about the Tucker Carlson Putin uh, interview. Uh, for those of us who missed it, your take on what it means uh, in 57 seconds. <sighs> I think that we learned absolutely nothing new that we couldn't have learned or that an interested viewer or listener couldn't have learned from reading or really listening to any of Putin's speeches from the last 15 years, I want to say. Um, he's been known to give these historical uh, lessons to people that make it very clear that he comes from a a standpoint of cultural imperialism where he is convinced that Moscow has the right to, I almost want to say rule, over anyone in the Russian cultural sphere. And the fact that Tucker Carlson felt it necessary to go there and have him ha- let him have two hours of airtime to reiterate this baffles me a little bit. Mm. Yeah, and maybe a media lesson, uh, or not a lesson as well, you know, as we're saying, I guess if you're a big enough personality, even a fallen one like Tucker Carlson, it's it's extraordinary that you can still find a platform without even having a massive network behind you to, to be able to get your story out as well, correct? It is. It is, and... 
I don't know how much responsibility for this we should put on the platforms that host this sort of thing. It's it's an ongoing conversation. You know, the counter argument is that free speech is important, and it is. I just feel like to people who don't follow this stuff regularly, there needs to be some sort of contextualization. Yeah, little, and that was completely lacking yeah, here. Yeah, a little bit of a filter. Um, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Demita, very nice having you on the program from the NZZ. Uh, Sarah Fatteroli also uh, from Blick. Very nice having you on the show. Uh, we are coming up to uh, just uh, 59 past the hour. Also, big thanks to Petri Burstov, Hannah Lucinda Smith and Istanbul, our design editor, Nick Moniz, as well. Uh, also, our producers, Maria Lebev and Emma Nelson back in London. Uh, also, uh, Vati Sok here uh, looking after uh, the desk solo here as well. We are going to be back next week. Uh, Emma is going to be in the driver's seat. I'm going to be heading to Portugal, but uh, I'll still be on the program prior to getting on the flight. Have a very good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.